Good morning, good morning. Let us learn some Torah, some Torah deep dive together. And uh, we have a, a very meaningful topic. And uh, when it wasn't originally planned to be on the very same day as a, a very critical day for the Jewish people. You know, it's a, a difficult day. It was a very difficult decision, as we all know. And uh, you know, unfortunately, it will come with its own prices. But many hostages or the beginning of many hostages coming home, God willing, is happening today, maybe even as we speak. And may it happen uh, smoothly and with no uh, with no difficulty. And may Hashem continue to protect uh, the captives, both who are still in captivity as well as those who are released as well. They continue to need a lot of a lot of assistance and uh, divine kindness and mercy and love. But I want to talk a little bit about this, the idea of uh, the Jewish attitude, how we should be looking at this with fellow Jews in captivity. And unfortunately, this is not at all a rare phenomenon. The Jewish community has faced this reality more often than not within our history. And I want to talk a little bit about this, and I want to talk about our role in this reality as well. Because, you know, it's easy to talk about something that's happening on the other side of the globe, and what other people should be doing. But I want to talk about it in very personal terms, which is always, of course, what's most important. So I want to begin, let's begin, let's jump right in on page three, as we speak about the Jewish attitude towards Jews in captivity and the value that we place historically and the value we place as well religiously within the Torah to redeeming captives and uh, the priority, the utmost care we put into it. So let's begin on page three. Our first source from the Torah, just a few weeks ago we learned about this. The first story of uh, captivity. Abraham here is about his relative who was captured. Let's read. Source number one from Genesis. Abraham heard that his nephew was taken captive and he assembled his charges. Those who were born in his home, 318 of them. And he pursued the captors until dawn. He divided his men against them at night and smote them and pursued them until Hova, which is to the north of Damascus. He brought back all the possession and Lot, his nephew, and his possessions and also the woman and the people. So Lot was taken captive, was kidnapped. And Abraham doesn't take this as his uncle, doesn't take it laying down. He goes into war mode. And in general, the more you know about Abraham, the more you know that he was not a fighter. Uh, he was a very warm person. He had a lot of love inside of him. He, he was not a harsh personality. Um, his whole mode of, of relationships was with kindness and love and with the soft hand. But here there's a, a relative who's in captivity. He goes all out and he organizes a fighting force and he wins and he's able to redeem and release and free this captive. Okay, next source. Next source. Another story of captivity in the Torah. The Canaanite king of Arad, who lived in the south, right? We're in the south of Israel heard that Israel had come by the root of the spies. And he waged war against Israel and took a captive from them. The Jews are outside of the land of Israel, outside of the land of Canaan. He hears the Jews are coming. And he goes and takes, takes a Jew. 
Israel made a vow to God and said, if you deliver this nation into my hand, I will consecrate their cities. God heard Israel's voice and delivered the Canaanites. Israel destroyed them and consecrated their cities and called the place Hormer. Okay, once again, there's a hostage situation. The Jews asked God to help them. And they promised to God that they will, if they were able to conquer this nation and these cities, they will make these cities holy and make it as part of the Jewish homeland. And God helped the Jewish people at the time to free the captives and to conquer those cities. And Rashi tells us, who are we talking about over here? Who are the captives? Says Rashi, they took from them a captive, a single maidservant. One Jew. And it was a maidservant. But the nation went all out. And again, this is another example of just how serious and how extreme the Jewish people reacted historically to making sure that our captives are returned home and that we did it with tremendous force. Okay, one more, one more example. This is from the Talmud, and this shows us a different type of influence, a different type of force that was used. Source three, on the bottom of page three. The rabbis taught, it happened once that Rabbi Yehoshua ben Hananiah visited a large city in Rome. The people there told him about a young Jewish child in prison with beautiful eyes and an attractive appearance, his curly hair arranged in locks. Okay, this is a young Jewish boy who's in captivity and this great sage Rabbi Yehoshua hears about it. Page four, Rabbi Yehoshua went and stood by the entrance to the prison. He said, as if speaking to himself, he quotes the verse, who gave Jacob for a spoil and Israel to the robbers, which is a verse from Isaiah. See, he screams out in a way that whoever's on the other side of the prison walls could hear. Who gave Jacob for a spoil and Israel to the robbers? That child answered by reciting the continuation of the verse. Did not God, he against whom we have sinned and in whose ways they would not walk, Neither were they obedient to his law. Rabbi Yehoshua said, I am certain that if given the opportunity, this child will issue halachic rulings in Israel as he is already exceedingly wise. He said, I take an oath by the temple service that I will not move from here until I ransom him for whatever sum of money they set for him. They said that he did not move from there until he ransomed him for a great sum of money, and not even a few days had passed when this child issued rulings in Jewish law in Israel. Who was this child? This was Rabbi Yishmael ben Elisha. Rabbi Yishmael ben Elisha was one of the greatest high priests who served in the temple. A great sage. And this is the story. As a young child, we don't know the exact background, but he was taken captive. Um... It may even have been due to some type of civil infraction by his family. Who knows? They couldn't pay taxes. It could have been as part of the uh, destruction of Judea by the Romans, and this is one of the captives they took. But we see over here, Rabbi Yeshua said, any sum of money I'm willing to pay to get this Jewish boy out. So this is the idea. This is the first basic point that we do not take the issue of captives lightly in Jewish history, 
And uh, whatever type of force and power we can use to get them out, we use it, whether it's money or the sword. Let's continue going. And this becomes a mitzvah. One of the mitzvahs in the Torah is to redeem Jews in captivity. Pidyon Shavuyim. And this is considered one of the greatest uh, mitzvahs to do. But it's also one of the forms of oppression that the Jewish people have to suffer through as part of the exile. We are still in a period of exile. Ever since the temple was destroyed, we're in a time of, uh, of, of suffering. And even when things are comfortable, there's always going to be some form of oppression which makes the time that we're living through a time of, uh, of exile. And this was prophesied. I want to read this with you. Very, very uh, striking, dramatic, and difficult words. Page five, the first source of here from Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet, a Jewish prophet who lived in the times before the destruction of the first holy temple. So the Jews didn't even know yet what it means to live through the destruction, through an exile, through a period of oppression and suffering. And Jeremiah spent many, many years faithfully transmitting the prophecies of destruction to the Jewish people. And the Jewish people did not like him for that reason. <laughs> he was not a prophet who had an easy time. He had no choice. A prophet shares the word of God faithfully. But the Jews did not want to hear it, and the Jews did not want to believe it, and the Jews called him a traitor, and the Jews made him suffer tremendously. And Jeremiah, on the one hand, prayed to God and implored to God to not actualize the prophecy of destruction. And at the same time, brought the word of God to warn the Jews that this is what will happen unless something changes. And this is one verse from Jeremiah, from the book of Jeremiah, of Yirmiyahu, the prophet Yirmiyahu, where he prays to God to not bring on the destruction. So let's read, source number four. God said to me, this is what God says, even if Moses and Samuel were to stand before me, I have no desire for this people. It's such difficult words. I have no desire for this people. Send them away from before my face and let them go forth. Which means God says, this is just what's going to happen. It's going to be the exile, the Babylonian exile. And they're going to have they're going to be sent away from Jerusalem. God says, okay. Now, God continues. It shall be if they say to you, where shall we go? You shall say to them, so said God. Such as are for death to death, and such as are for the sword to the sword, and such as are for famine to famine, and such as are for captivity to captivity. God tells Jeremiah, tell the Jewish people that when the time comes, they should know this is this is what's happening. And those Jews who are destined, who are decreed to death, they shall go to death, and to sword to sword, and to captivity. They shall go to captivity. This is a part of uh, of being in a world and being, you know, it's these moments that remind us how deeply we still are in bad shape. And no matter how comfortable we are, you know, as living as Jews, no matter how great the opportunities are and the freedoms are, we're still living in difficulty. We're still suffering in uh, an exile that has been close to 2,000 years. And captivity is one of those just uh, stark reminders that, you know, just slap us in the face and make us realize what we're living through.
But the Talmud learns from this last passage. Let's read the Talmud on this passage. In source number five. Redeeming captives is a great mitzvah. In the Hebrew, it's a mitzvah rabbah. There's a regular mitzvah, then there's a great mitzvah. This is a great mitzvah. So let's read the, the discussion here in the Talmud. Rava said to Rabba Bar Mari, from which verse do we derive the statement of the sages that redeeming captives is a great mitzvah? Where do we know this from? Rabba Bar Mari said to him, as it is written, it shall be, if they say to you, where shall we go? You shall say to them, so said God, such as are for death to death, and such as are for the sword to the sword, and such as for famine to famine, and such as for captivity to captivity. And Rabbi Yochanan says, whichever punishment is written later in this verse is more severe than the one before it. The whole verse is in a certain succession. And the Talmud explains, Rabbi Yochanan explains, death by sword is worse than natural death, as the sword mutilates the body, while natural death does not mutilate it. So the best form of oppression is death. Next is death by the sword. Famine is worse than the sword, as it causes extreme pain before death, while the sword does not. All right, so there's dying by the sword is better than dying by famine. And he concludes captivity is worse than all of them, as it includes all of them. Famine, the sword, and death. In captivity, it all happens. Captivity is the worst form of, 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 of oppression. Because you suffer in all the worst ways. And for that reason, the Talmud says this is the greatest mitzvah. You could take a Jew out of captivity and save him from the very first form of the worst form of torture and oppression and death. It's the greatest mitzvah. And that's what the that's what Maimonides codifies here on page six. This is from Maimonides' book of law. The redemption of captives receives priority over sustaining the poor and providing them with clothing. There is no greater mitzvah than the redemption of captives. For a captive is among those who are hungry, thirsty, and unclothed, and is in mortal danger. People that pay no attention to the redemption of captives violate the negative commandments. Do not harden your heart or close your hands. Do not stand by when the blood of your neighbor is in danger, and he shall not oppress him with exhausting work in your presence. They have also negated the observance of the positive commandments, and you shall certainly open up your hand to him, and your brother shall live with you. Love your neighbor as yourself. Save those who are taken for death, and many other decrees of this nature. There is no mitzvah as great as the redemption of captives. Maimonides is very, very strong over here. How much of a priority redeeming captives are. And one final note on the importance and the um, and the uh, just how critical this mitzvah is is source seven from the Code of Jewish Law. Every avoidable moment's delay in redeeming captives is tantamount to bloodshed. If you have the opportunity to help save somebody from captivity, and you do something else, you delay it by a moment. It's bloodshed. Now. Dear friends, of course, this opens up a whole conversation of practically what's happening in Israel. 
how should Israel react when we have captives taken by Hamas and our enemies know our weakness and know how much uh, we will react and know how much we will do whatever we can to bring back our hostages. And they weaponize that against us, right? Our strength and love and dedication to our fellow Jews and how critical we see the issue of captivity, they use that out against us. You know, Hamas didn't take 240 hostages because they wanted to, you know, they were being nice to Jews to keep them alive. You know, they would have gladly killed them there in the kibbutzim in the south. They only did it because they knew they could inflict even more damage and even more harm to the Jewish people, which really opens up a whole conversation. If what Israel did was right, I don't want to get into it. But part of Jewish law is that you are not allowed to redeem a captive for more than their worth on the open market if it's going to incentivize the future kidnapping of Jews. Which means if this will be if this will be or begin a process, a cycle of incentivizing Jewish kidnappings, you're not allowed to you're not allowed to redeem him for more than the value, which is a very touchy subject, right? What's happening? You tell Hamas, you know what? If you steal a Jew, if you kidnap a Jew, uh, we will do whatever it takes. We'll release however, you know, whatever. All you're doing is incentivizing. All you're doing is setting up the trap for the next group of Jews to be held captive, which, which creates a very, very uh, untenable situation, a very unsustainable model. And according to your law, it's forbidden. You're not, you know, in such a situation, there has to be a lot, a lot of care, which makes it a very difficult thing to balance. Because on the one hand, look, you know, we have all the sources here. You do whatever you do whatever it takes to free a Jewish hostage. At the same time, you have to do it with tremendous care. Uh, one of the most famous episodes in Jewish history about this was about a great rabbi, truly a great rabbi. Um, his name was Rabbi Meir of Rottenburg in Germany. He was a German rabbi. He lived in the 1200s, if I'm not mistaken, the 1200s, 13th century. And the, some of his students were some of the greatest uh, teachers and, and codifiers of Jewish law. Great, great, great uh, Jewish leader and a sage. He was kidnapped by the Christian authorities in Germany. Um, what happened was it was actually instigated by a Jew, by an apostate Jew, a Jew who converted to Christianity. And uh, he was the one who encouraged the uh, local cardinal or whatever it was to kidnap this rabbi. So they arrested this rabbi on no charges. It was a pure hostage situation. And they told the Jewish community that we're not freeing him unless the Jewish community pays like 20,000 pounds or whatever the, uh, you know, a very large sum of money. And the rabbi from, so they, so they put him on an island. That's where they kept him, uh, kept him imprisoned. And he got the message to his community that on no grounds are they allowed to redeem him. Because the moment they redeem him for 20,000 pounds, every single rabbi in all of Germany is under threat. And he knew for a fact that this is just going to become an endless cycle of, uh, of the Christian authorities arresting rabbis, demanding massive ransoms. And uh, he says, I, I, I'm, I'm not going to allow myself to be freed under such conditions. And he died in captivity for seven years. He, he, and to make matters even worse, the Christian authorities didn't even want to release his dead body. 
took 14 years. They held on to his body. Only 14 years later was he brought to burial. But uh, this became, this, this is part of Jewish law. Rabbi Meir of Rottenburg, or he's known as the Maharam, Maharam of Rottenburg. He was a chief rabbi in Rottenburg, Germany. Okay. So we could do a whole class on the policy, on, on how Israel's government, uh, how would Jewish law guide the diplomatic efforts to bring back the hostages today? Unfortunately, I don't think what just happened in Israel was the right decision. I don't think so. Jewish law would not sanction such a deal. Um, which is very painful. And it's, it's, it's clearly painful because Jewish law puts unbelievable priority to freeing hostages. But you cannot do something that creates an incentive for people to go and start hurting Jews. That is simply something which is... is a Jewish community cannot make such a decision. A Jewish government cannot do that. Um, it's it's looking for short short term gain, but for for endless suffering in the future. And to do something that that puts you in that situation, it's it's very painful to say that because right now there are going to be families who are reuniting with their young children, and it's uh, and I'm so happy for them. Meaning, you know, it's not in my control what happened in Israel, and all I could do is just feel uh, I'm, it's a very emotional day. And in a certain way, I'm like I'm on shulkas, right? Uh, you know, just the idea, the thought that all these, you know, God, God willing, will be 50 young children and women reunited with their families, and uh, the end of their of their suffering is uh, is tremendous joy and very emotional. But at the same time, as difficult as as it is to say, this is this is really, uh, I do not believe that this is the decision that the Israeli government made is not in line uh, with good logic, with good strategy, and Jewish law uh, cannot get behind that. So I don't want to discuss it. And it really is, we need to have a whole hour class to discuss the exact nuances and the ins and outs within Jewish law of dealing with a, a hostage situation like we are dealing with today, uh, where it's it's definitely negotiating with terrorists and creating incentive, future incentive, to continue kidnapping innocent children, innocent young Jewish children, a woman, I'm saying, this, this, it's, a, it's a horrible, it's a horrible cycle. To get yourself stuck in, and unfortunately, Israel, you know, con continues just uh, continuing that cycle. Okay, but in any case, let's talk about ourselves. <laughs> let's not talk about what governments should be doing, because I'm saying, if if I had any government officials here, we would do such a class. But we don't have any government officials here, as far as I know, and therefore, I want to talk. I want to bring this down personal. We have a half hour left. I want to talk about this very personal, because there is something very, very personal we could be learning about in what our response should be to a hostage situation taking on. And unfortunately, as we said before, this was always happening. During the Holocaust, Jews in America knew that there were Jews in captivity, Jews in camps, Jews in ghettos. And the question was, what, what could we do about it? So of course, we could donate, we could this, we could... But Judaism does give us a framework of how even Jews who are not in a position to directly be part of the process of fighting or being part of the redemption process, however it may be, what their place is. And I want to really explore that with you because that's underappreciated that even us Jews who don't have any uh, uh, tangible ways of helping, how we are part of the process and what our place is in that process. And again, this is all throughout history. Jews in Soviet Russia. Jews in America knew that we have fellow brothers and sisters who are being held in captivity or are suffering. What's our role with them? And all throughout history, we always knew that. There's always Jews in freedom and comfort 
and Jews who were in captivity. And and what is our, you know, is it just we feel bad for them? Is it just that it breaks our hearts? Or is it something that we could do right now? So what I want to learn with you is a very, very powerful teaching from the from the Rebbe. And it's really explaining a teaching from his father-in-law, the previous Rebbe. And I want to give you a little bit of background over here. The previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, his name was Rabbi Yosef Yitzhak Schneerson. He became a Jewish leader in 1920, right? Shortly uh, after the uh, Bolshevik Revolution, Russia turned, went from the Azarist regime to becoming communist. And it was very, very dark days of persecution for Jewish life, for Jewish religious life, as we all know. And the suffering of the Jewish people then was was indescribable, really indescribable. The absolute oppression against any form of Jewish education, the way they closed down shuls and mikvahs. And um, there was also, a, 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 there, was a, there was a crisis going on. Millions of Jews lived in Russia. And basically all rabbis, as soon as they saw that their lives were in danger, as soon as they got the first threat from the from the Bolsheviks, they just went into hiding. There was a, a mass vacuum, which happened overnight, of all rabbinic leadership, teachers, school teachers, rabbis of shul, everything. Religious life came to a standstill because most rabbis just weren't in the mood of having to, to deal with the KGB. And the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe was a, he was a he was a he was a lion of a leader. He was ferocious. He stood up, and he said, "We will not let Judaism die without putting up a fight." And it wasn't only about fighting in principle; it was about we will keep Judaism alive. And he organized and inspired and galvanized the all of his students, the Chabad community, which was in Russia, and the Chabad then was not in America. Chabad was in Russia, to be on the front line of keeping Judaism alive, being the rabbis of, of synagogues, uh, traveling and planting themselves within Jewish communities to be leadership, go into leadership positions, create a haters, create Jewish education. Even though there was tremendous risk of doing that. And uh, there's an untold piece of Jewish history. It's very untold of the amount of, uh, of Chabad men and women who were killed in the Soviet camps and the gulags and the prisons. Um, it, it's, it's really something remarkable. And there's a tremendous, a, a tremendous amount of suffering and just real sacrifice. Young men and women who went on the defense, on the offense, to keep Judaism alive, even though they knew that their days are numbered. The moment you do that, you're putting a, 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 you become a target, and the KGB will come after you. And that's exactly what happened. In 1927, the, uh, for the first few years, the, the communist authorities did not want to go after the Rebbe himself, because they knew that he's such an influential figure. They wanted to go after all the, all the low-level people, which they did, unfortunately. So many Hasidim uh, died doing the ultimate sacrifice to just teach Jewish children Aleph Beit, and just to teach Jewish children about, about our heritage, to try to keep that spark alive. 
1927, the communist patience was running out, and they arrested the previous Lubavitch Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzhak Schneerson, in the spring or in the summer of 1927. He was originally he was originally sentenced to death, but there's tremendous international pressure. Uh, the American State Department put a lot of pressure on the communists. You cannot kill this rabbi. And uh, they eventually commuted his sentence and kicked him out of kicked him and his family out of the Soviet Union. And that's what happened. But what that created was all of a sudden, the rebel was the leading force for all the Chabad Hasidim, thousands and thousands of people in Russia. And he sent them all on the suicide mission, on the sacred mission to be there for the Jewish people, even though it meant certain death and certain suffering. But now the leader left. Now you have all these people who need, who need to keep themselves inspired and young yeshiva students. Being a student was 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 uh, was also dangerous. Being part of an underground yeshiva, the Rebbe inspired thirteen-year-old boys, fourteen-year-old boys, fifteen-year-old boys to be willing to be arrested but study Torah. Don't go to the Bolshevik schools. Don't go to be indoctrinated in the ways of communism. Stay true to the Jewish faith. It's an unbelievable thing. Young thirteen-year-old boys. And we have record of this. There are even pictures of it. There's a picture of a whole of like there's eight nine boys, and they're one and they're two teachers. Their two teachers were shot to death. They were both arrested. So there's a picture of them posing uh, by the police station. The two teachers were shot to death in front of all these boys, and the boys were sent all to the gulags. And some survived. Some survived and built families in America. Uh, but this, this this what was it? so the rebel was kicked out of the country. But you have all the Hasidim left, be, left behind in Russia suffering. And you can only just imagine how much pain there was. The Rebbe felt so much pain that he can't be there to actively lead and guide and just simply to be there with all of his followers as they're on such a difficult, uh, as they're living such difficult lives. And all the followers as well just wanted to still have that spark to be in touch with the Rebbe and to, to get the assurance from the Rebbe and the inspiration. But the Rebbe wasn't there anymore. There was no contact. A year and a half later, in 1929, in Poland, this was after, in 1927, when the previous Rebbe was kicked out of, out of Russia, there was the celebration of his daughter's wedding to the Rebbe, to Rebbe Menachem Mendel Schneerson. So to the future Lubavitch Rebbe. And the, the celebration was in Warsaw, Poland. Of course, it was a tremendous celebration, but of course, it was, uh, it was very painful. The Rebbe's father himself was stuck in Russia. The Rebbe's parents was not at his own wedding because the communists would not let him join their son's wedding in Poland. And his father died under the communists. His father was part of that effort to give up his life for the Jewish people. Four days after the wedding, we have the seven-day celebration of the Sheva Brachot, Seven-day celebration of the wedding. This is a little uh, a quote, a little citation from what the previous Lubavitch Rebbe said in Warsaw, in Poland. Four days after the wedding, during the celebration for the, for the new bride and groom. Page seven, source eight, let's read. He says like this. He says, L'chaim, to the yeshiva students in Russia. He gives L'chaim to the yeshiva students in Russia. What should we wish them? 
that we must be more united? That is obvious. Not a moment passes that I don't think of them and that they don't think of me. So we're always thinking of each other. Let us wish that God should remove all the darkness. The Rebbe then instructed that a telegram be sent to several cities in Russia. Okay, it's missing a line over here. They asked the Rebbe, how should we sign the how should we sign the telegram? So the Rebbe answered. Here, one second. All right, there we go. So the Rebbe answered, if I sign the telegram in my name, mercy upon them, meaning a, a recipient of a letter from Schneerson would be harshly punished. The biggest crime in Russia, <laughs> the biggest crime to the KGB was having any association with anybody with the last name Schneerson. So he said, right, Rutzfennik, which if there's any Russians here, you'll pronounce my pronounce, you'll correct my pronunciation. Rutzfennik, which is Russian for relative. Just say that I'm a relative. And the Rebbe continued, the Hasidim are my brothers, and the yeshiva students are literally my brothers from the same mother and father. Okay, so you see a lot of emotion over here. That even in the in the moment of such joy, all you can think about is the Hasidim in Russia, especially the young yeshiva students who are giving up their lives just to learn Torah. It's an, and and he, he wanted to think about them. Let's write a letter to them. And right after this emotional proclamation, the previous Rebbe said a mimer, a Hasidic discourse, which was all about Jews in captivity. And I want to learn a little bit of that teaching with you, and especially how the Rebbe, his son-in-law, spoke about it and taught, uh, expounded upon his father-in-law's teachings. The Hasidic teaching is based on this statement from the Talmud. All right, so this is based on a teaching that the previous Lubavitch Rebbe said shortly after coming out of Russia, when he's speaking about in the celebration of his own daughter and son-in-law, thinking about the Hasidim and the Jews who are left behind in the former Soviet Union. And he says like this, he bases his teaching on this piece of Talmud. Bottom of page 9. Rabbi Oshi Yasef. What is the meaning of the verse, the righteous act of restoring open cities, which the Hebrew is perzono in Israel? This is a verse, the righteous act of restoring open cities in Israel. The word perzono, which means open cities, could also mean disbursement. In Hebrew, it's the same letters. And the Talmud says God did a kindness to the Jewish people by dispersing, which is Pizran, them among the nations. Ooh. The Talmud teaches us that God did a kindness to the Jewish people by dispersing them among the nations. What type of goodness is God doing by dispersing Jews among all the nations? So Rashi gives us the logic. Why is it good that God dispersed us? So Rashi says, did a kindness by dispersing, the meaning of that is, it would be impossible to annihilate them all at once. Very simple. And unfortunately, this was a fact of Jewish history. It was a good thing that Jews didn't live in one place. It was a very good thing. Because that meant that whenever there was a persecution, 
And whenever there was a genocide in one place, Jews were able to survive and continue building in another place. The Holocaust destroyed European Jewry, but there were Jews in America. There were Jews in Israel. Thank God. The survivors had where to go to. Jewish life was able to continue elsewhere. And all throughout Jewish history, this was, you know, the Spanish Inquisition expels the Jews and destroys Jewish life in Spain. It could continue elsewhere. So it was a charity. It was a goodness. It was a kindness that God didn't, when we were sent into exile, we weren't forced into one place, which would have meant that any, any anti-Semite uh, would be able to annihilate all. But the Rebbe teaches a much deeper insight over here. It's not just a practical goodness. It's not just practically it's good because now one anti-Semite can't kill all of us at once. There's also something deeper. A much deeper message. Let's read this on page 8 from the Rebbe. Right? We'll finally get to the Rebbe's teaching here. The Rebbe says like this. The Rebbe Rayatz which is one of the ways that I referred to the previous Rebbe as Rayatz, like a Jewish acronym. Just like before, there was the Maharam, right? Maharam of Rottenburg. So there's the Rebbe Rayatz. Rayatz stands for Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak. Rayatz. Okay. So the Rebbe Rayatz explains that there is a positive aspect to the Jewish people being spread out in various countries. It can happen that the Jews in one country are oppressed and not allowed to study Torah and observe mitzvot. Some mitzvot maybe cannot be observed, even if people are willing to risk their lives for them. For example, if the government does not allow the four kinds to be, to be brought into the country for Sukkot, then the mitzvah simply cannot be observed, regardless of how much one is willing to sacrifice for it. You can't buy an etrog that is... Etrogs don't grow in Russia. Have to get it from Italy. If the Russian government didn't allow any etros to come in from Italy, millions of Jews couldn't do a mitzvah of shaking the lula of an etro. And this was a reality. When Jews in other countries study Torah and observe mitzvot, they give the Jews that are under oppression strength and fortitude to study Torah and observe mitzvot. Why is it a kindness that God dispersed the Jewish people? There's also a deeper meaning. Because like that, there are always Jews who could keep the mitzvot. Now, why is that significant? The Rebbe says two ideas. One is more practical and one is more spiritual. Practically speaking, imagine you're a Jew who's living in former Soviet Union. Okay, I, I just let's let's try to get a little bit into the head of a Jew who's living under communism. All you know is that every single form of Jewish religious life, any single form of mitzvah observance is slowly dying out. It's impossible. And all you know is that you're the last one doing things. As far as you know, you could start getting very dejected. What am I risking my life for? They're going to kill me anyways. I can't keep up the whole Judaism. You know, am I fighting a lost battle? Simply the knowledge that there is Judaism alive and thriving outside of your country, outside of your oppression, and that you are fighting something that will survive, just that knowledge itself gives them strength and fortitude. 
And this was something that the Rebbe personally, until the fall of communism, put a tremendous amount of effort into. The Jews in Russia, the Jews in the former Soviet Union should always know they're not alone. They should know they're not alone. After today's class, I'm going to send you all by email a video clip, and I want you to watch it. Such a powerful video of just how much uh, investment the Rebbe put into the Jews in the former Soviet Union. To give them support, but mostly for them to just know you're not alone. We're thinking about you. And one of the things that the Rebbe did, which was uh, also an unexplored part of Jewish history, starting in the early 1960s, and it was really able to start after Stalin died, really. So that, that's really when this started. The Rebbe started sending undercover agents into Russia to support the local Jews. So he would send Jews and businessmen, whoever he could, Chabad and not Chabad, to enter into the former Soviet Union as tourists or as businessmen, but to secretly go and be a, a line between the Rebbe and these Jews and these Jewish communities. And it's a fascinating piece of history. My father actually went on two of these missions in the 80s, which was already, it was already much easier to do with them. But it was, a, it was a real deal. For years and years, it was a whole arm, a little bit of a secret arm of the Rebbe's work um, to, to bring, first of all, send people and supplies and just to be the force that is able to bring Jewish life to Russia and uh, in every single way. You know, the Jewish children and Jewish adults needed circumcision. How did they get circumcision? Who circumcised them? <laughs> the Rebbe made sure from New York that Jews in Russia could get a circumcision. And how, how is there going to be meat for Passover? I'm saying a mezuzah, power swirls, filling, all this is all. In the early 1960s, there was a chassid who went to Russia on one of these missions. His name was Binyamin Katz. Binyamin Katz. He did many of these missions because he had a photographic memory. And that was one of the greatest assets to going on a secret mission to Russia because <laughs> you can't go with lists because the God forbid for the KGB to arrest you and get, get hold of the list of contacts and people and addresses. So everything had to be in your head. Couldn't write anything down. So this Binyamin Katz, he had a photographic memory. So he would be able to remember every single name and every single city and every single address, and every single phone number and everything. And he would make contact and everything was in his head. So he was, uh, he was very important. In the early 60s, he went multiple times on behalf of the Rebbe to Russia. But he shared that he met an uh, underground yeshiva. And the underground yeshiva wasn't too beautiful. It was maybe six, seven, eight boys with one, uh, with one teacher who didn't even know if he's going to be caught that night. And, uh, and he went to meet them one night in their underground bunker, underground cellar, in the basement where they would gather. And all the young yeshiva boys had one question and one question only. Just, just yeah, you have to picture this. These are boys who don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. And the boys asked him, do the Jews in America remember us? That was the only question. And he said, listen, I don't know where the hearts of American Jews are, but what I could tell you is that the Rebbe always thinks about you. The Rebbe always speaks about you. The Rebbe always cries about you. And the Rebbe sent me to you. I just want you to know that the Rebbe deeply, deeply cares and loves you and just can't stop talking about you. 
these yeshiva boys didn't make it out until until the 70s. All right? uh, for sure, another 10, 15, maybe even 20 years until they came out of the former Soviet Union. And they all said that that knowledge was what helped them go. Knowing that the Rebbe cared about them. They were able to make it to another fighting day just because of that knowledge. And that's what they were saying over here. When Jews who are in captivity know that there are other Jews who, first of all, remember them, think about them, care about them, cry for them, and also are doing mitzvahs. What we can't do, we're part of a larger network. That itself gives them support. But there's also something deeper, the Rebbe says. All Jews are one body. We have to think of the Jewish people as limbs which are part of one organism. And the way it works is that even when there's one part of the body who is not doing well, one part of the body is unhealthy. You know, so the Rebbe speaks about this in terms of health and medicine. There are two forms of administering medicine. One is that there's one part of the body that needs help, so you treat that part of the body. The other form of medicine is treat the whole body. Bring health to the whole body and automatically the one part of the body that's not doing well will also get better. Why? You're strengthening the whole body. And the Rebbe says that also. If one Jew can't do mitzvahs, one Jew's in captivity, is under oppression, when other Jews do mitzvahs and study Torah, it brings spiritual strength to those Jews as well because we're one body. And when one part of the body is getting stronger, it uplifts the whole body. Very powerful idea. We're one soul, and it's a very real thing. We bring blessings and strength and, and just spiritual fortitude, spiritual strength to these Jews who are in captivity. And the Rebbe continues on page 8, middle of page 8, how support leads to freedom. The Rebbe says, the effect of this support is gradual. First, the oppressed Jews will be able to observe mitzvot when they are willing to risk their lives for them. As there is an opinion that people are allowed to risk their lives even for the observance of mitzvot that we are told that self-sacrifice is not warranted. So first, we'll give them the strength to go and sacrifice to keep Torah mitzvot. And the next step will be that the oppressed Jews will no longer have to risk their lives for mitzvot observance. The final stage will be that they will have no impediments at all and will be completely free to observe mitzvot in an expansive manner. As the sages teach, a person that observes the Torah in poverty will eventually observe it in wealth. The Rebbe says, from our doing Torah and mitzvahs, it brings them strength, spiritual strength, which, with, which ultimately brings them to even go completely free. It's just the idea. There's a spiritual power to the Jewish people and we, even though we are not part of the diplomatic discussions of how to redeem them, the spiritual power we give them through doing a mitzvah and strengthening the Jewish body, the Jewish organism, that itself gives them strength and ultimately leads to their freedom. And that's what it means. God did a kindness by dispersing the Jews. That even when there's a Jew who's in captivity, there's another Jew who's not in captivity. And when that Jew who's not in captivity can do a mitzvah, that's what brings strength and redemption to the other Jew. Now, we're running a little bit tight on time over here, but I want to read with you, at least a little bit quickly, the idea, the Rebbe now leads this also 
um, in a deeper way to even us Jews who live in freedom, how the same dynamic plays out, even amongst Jews in freedom. Because there's captivity by outside forces and there's captivity by inner forces. Some people are also captives to their own minds, captives to their own heart, captives to their own weaknesses, captives to their own evil inclination, to the animal soul. And the same exact dynamic plays out as well uh, in that sense. Let's read that on page nine. I will go through it a little bit more quicker. Internal captivity. The rabbi says like this. Since the Torah is eternal, and it applies in every place and at every time, it is clear that the kindness in being dispersed is also relevant to places where there are no restrictions on mitzvah observance. So how does this whole dynamic also apply to us where we are not in captivity? Says the Rebbe, we can understand the relevance based on a teaching of the Rebbe Rayats, of the previous Rebbe, about the mitzvah of redeeming captives, explaining how this concept exists on a spiritual plane as well. A captive in the physical sense is an imprisoned person who cannot leave a certain place. That's a physical captive. In the spiritual sense, this refers to people who are in the captivity of their negative inclination. There's also spiritual captivity where you feel that you can't express yourself properly because you are being forced into a certain position by the evil inclination. Mental captivity, right? For example, a business person whose mind is occupied by worrying and disturbing thoughts about their financial affairs, such a person is a captive of their paralyzing thoughts and cannot break free of them. That's captivity. This captivity can even rise to the legal status of compulsion. As Maimonides writes, his negative inclination overpowered him. So there's this idea. That begins an example of a business person who has so much anxiety and worry about his businesses. So think about it. This person has a wife and kids. This person has a life to live. Can you imagine somebody who goes to business every single day, but he has no time to spend time with his kids? He doesn't come home and give his wife and kids the proper attention. Why not? Because he's, he's, he's worried about his financial affairs. And he can't be involved in Jewish life. He can't give time for his own soul. Why? I'm busy with my business. Rebbe says, that's, that's captivity. <laughs> I've got news for you. You're stuck in captivity under your own evil inclination uh, that, that is not allowing you to live a life of freedom, to live a life of doing what you need to do. And the real truth is, every single one of us, in their own way, is suffering from our own captivity. Every single person has their weaknesses, and where our evil inclination gets us, and we feel stuck under whatever whatever form, it's very personal. But everyone suffers from this own captivity, which is a part of exile. Part of exile is that not only we are oppressed by outside forces, but our soul is also oppressed internally by our own evil inclination. So the Rebbe continues like this. Bottom of page nine, right? Everyone has their own challenges. This is where we find the kindness of dispersion, even as we live in a free country. When a Jew is held captive by their negative inclination, they can't free themselves, right? A prisoner can't free themselves from captivity. 
So when you are suffering from your own inner captivity, you can't free yourself. They can, however, be helped by another Jew who is not a captive in this regard. Maybe I'm captive in one way, but you're not captive in that way. You're captive in a different way. But in my area of captivity, you're actually free. And the Rebbe says, oh, that's very critical. Let's continue, page 10. This can be done even by a person who is themselves a captive in the hands of their negative inclination in a different respect. But since this person is free in some areas of life, they can serve as a positive example in those areas. Every individual has different struggles. So here's the idea. The Rebbe said the exact same thing. The same way we give practical strength and spiritual strength by doing mitzvahs and freedom, we give that strength to the Jews who are in captivity. The same thing plays out in our lives. When we see other Jews who are excelling, who are free in the area that we are stuck and captive, it inspires us to break out of their captivity, out of our captivity, because we see them as being free. And also spiritually, their freedom supports us. They're doing mitzvahs and freedom. And, 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 right, it's, it's, a, it's a deeper level of freedom. A spiritual freedom inspires us to also, it helps us, it gives us also the gift of spiritual freedom. And the Rebbe says, let's continue, every era, every era in history has its specific spiritual purpose. The strongest temptations and opposition of the negative inclinations are focused on preventing this purpose from being realized. This is why the challenges of each generation are different. For example, during the generation of Menashe, king of Israel, the temptation of idol worship was especially powerful. But in subsequent generations, the inclination to idol worship was eliminated. Similarly, every individual Jew has their personal mission in life. And the strongest temptations and opposition of the negative inclinations are focused on this issue. So every Jew has their struggle, which is where their purpose is. And every generation, the same thing happens. So the Rebbe says, by observing the mitzvot that, are, that our negative inclination does not resist so strongly, through that we redeem from captivity those people whose negative inclination holds them captive with regard to those mitzvot. And the Rebbe continues on page 11. Let's wrap up. The kindness that God did for us by dispersing us among the nations is by giving us the ability to redeem captives in the spiritual sense. Redeeming captives is the highest form of charity and is the greatest mitzvah of all. By God dispersing us among the nations on different types of negative inclinations, we are able to perform charity with each other, redeeming people from captivity. So dear friends, I want to conclude over here, 12 o'clock. I want to share with you this, this, this idea. The spiritual idea of that we really do matter to the Jews who are in captivity. And this is part of how God designed the world. He did a charity to the Jewish people. That when there are Jews who are in captivity, there are always Jews in freedom. And by us doing the mitzvahs that they cannot do right now, we give them that strength. They know practically that we care about them. And their souls get that energy, the energy of freedom that God willing, they will be freed. So I want to encourage you, for all the women here tonight, to light Shabbos candles and to make sure to do it on time before sundown. Don't do it after sundown, but make sure to do it before sundown. Just 
and to do it especially in honor of the girls and the women in captivity who can't light Shabbos candles. And it's already it's already Shabbos in Israel. So for those who couldn't light Shabbos candles this week, you'll do it for them. And think about them when you do that mitzvah. And for the men to put on tefillin or to do another mitzvah and have them in mind that I'm doing this mitzvah for them. And to think about them and try to connect your souls with them. And this is the kindness that, that God did for us, that we could be there in spiritual support, which will bring about the redemption through us being able to do the mitzvah that they can do. And dear friends, with that, let's conclude our Torah deep dive for this week. And uh, may we only have good news that the whole subject of Jews in captivity should be a theoretical discussion and should no more be a topic of, of relevance, a painful topic of relevance. May we only have good news and miracles, God willing. And I want to wish you all a wonderful Shabbat. I will see you all soon.